Jesus, we do believe that, and we are so grateful for that. You can be seated. The Bible passage for this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, which you can find on page 1777 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Hey everyone. So if if you came to church last week, you know this is the same passage from last week. That's not a mistake. Several months ago, um, I determined we would spend two weeks on this passage. It's the only one in Ephesians that we'll intentionally spend two weeks on. And the reason for that is that this passage in Ephesians is in some ways the go-to passage in the New Testament on the interrelationship in the church. Some of you, if you've been either to explore coming into the church or if you've been to any of our leadership stuff or our, our spiritual development stuff that we do, you know that our church has a number of core values. There are some that we focus on every single day and you can't do anything at any time at High Point Church that's not consonant with those five values, which is gospel-centeredness, biblical integrity, community, sacrificial love, and contextualization, which just means meeting people where they're at. Every minute, we're always on those things all the time. And then there's other things in life that, like, if you, don't, if you don't keep going back to them, you lose sight of them. And those things are evangelism, right? You got, all of us just—not all of us. Most of us, over time, stop telling people about Jesus. And you have to go back to that and be like, wait, no, this is who we are. We were given a commission, right? Secondly is leadership development or growing new shepherds. If you read through the Bible, the people of God do about as well as their shepherds. And so 
We have to give a lot of effort to building up shepherds, not only for this body of Christ, but we want to be a shepherd surplus body of Christ, where we're actually providing spiritual leadership to people outside of this church, because there's a lot of churches that are not producing the shepherds that they need to be vibrant in Christ, right? And then the next two or three, depending on how you count, are all the inters. Intergenerational, a church and a body for all generations to all generations, where we say you're only really a grown-up when you can walk through those doors and you can talk to a four-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 27-year-old, a 46-year-old, and a 78-year-old, and not really pay much attention to yourself personally that you have interacted with all those different people. Because adults are fundamentally intergenerational creatures. That's part of maturity. And we want to be a church in which there is a deep respect and mutual care and mutual love between all the generations of humanity, right? Then intercultural, which includes interracial, right? That is, the, the main obstacle in uniting with one another is not just the fact that we're, some of us are different colors than each other in terms of our skin or our phenotypical exp- expression, but that bound in with our races and our cultures and our nationality are these cultural norms that don't always easily merge and mesh with each other, right? You see this when you, like, do a wedding for a German and a Puerto Rican family and nobody shows up at the same time, you know? It's not, it's not, like, it's not like somebody's evil. It's like one culture thinks things start at the time you designate and the other culture thinks that— thinks that things start when everybody arrives. It's just, it's just different. And you, you norm to that norm, depending on what the norm is, right? Um, I, my family is made up of Italian, British, German stock, and Italian stock, okay? And it is entirely schizophrenic. And I watched my parents struggle, and a lot of their struggles were rooted in the fact that my mom is Italian. And my dad was raised by, like, British Germans. And they're not the same. Right? And then international, because in addition to cultural differences, when you're not working from the same heart language, man, there's all kinds of more difficulties that enter in there. And the United States is becoming ever increasingly more, not just intercultural, but international, especially cross-linguistically. And that's a whole set of skills that we require that many of us, when we were growing up, we just didn't need. But why—but the purpose of having those values, the reason why they're so important, is because of what this passage directly teaches. It directly teaches that God, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, has made all who believe in him one. And the the way that he's done that, the main way that he's done that, this passage says, um, is by putting to death— our enmity and our hostility, and making peace. It's worth asking, are, are we at peace? Right? So here's, a, here's one way to look at it. Human, human beings, if you notice, and you're not myopic in your view, you will see that every group of human beings on planet Earth throughout all of recorded history has had an enmity problem. Right? It's not—it's not new. It, it didn't start with the election of President Trump or President Obama or something like that. It didn't—it didn't begin with the, the broad dissemination of cable news. It, that's not what started the human enmity problem, okay? Do you, where does human enmity arise in the human story? Genesis 4, okay? Like Cain and Abel, like it's super fast. You get sin— which you could argue is human enmity 
or jealousy or envy towards God that he had the knowledge and we didn't, and we couldn't wait for the developmental process. And so the first sin is itself enmity against God, and then the very next sin is enmity and envy between brothers. Because why fix ourselves when we can hate other people, right? And so you could ask, like, where does this enmity come from, right? And the, one of the issues that we're having culturally is that we want— Everybody wants simple answers. Like, the world is complicated. And the more complicated the world gets, the natural reaction of human beings actually isn't to become more complicated ourselves. The natural reaction of human beings is to want simpler and simpler answers. So that people become more and more open to, like, like one thingism in answers to all of our problems. What's the problem? It's those people. Right? Because it's never one thing. It's much easier to believe that the problem, the answer is the, that the problem is that group of people. Because those people can be relatively complicated, but they can still be the whole problem. Right? And so we simply refer to that in our culture as hate. You're hating. I'm hating. You people give this hate. There's all this hate. And it's, it's one of the most imprecise words we use in our culture. It rivals the imprecision of our use of the word love. Right? And one of the things that we don't realize, I think it was John Maynard Keynes that says, said that, you know, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, a lot of people think that they believe perfectly noble, new, and intellectual thoughts, and they're really just the slaves of old, defunct economists in their thinking. And one of the things that we don't realize is that our, our whole culture, even within the church, is almost entirely slaved to a defunct philosophy that in the 17 and 1800s was simply referred to as romanticism, which is the idea that the, the only truly authentic thing that you can do is express yourself. The truest, most authentic thing in human experience is the heart. It's your heart. And you were born pure. Pure as the driven snow. In fact, if Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the person who's credited with being the founder of this, said, if you really want to find the most noble form of humanity, you don't go to high society England or France. You go to the savages. You go to the people who, have, who don't have buildings or guns. And there you will find nobility, right? Which is one of the reasons why Alexis de Tocqueville, when he was raised in France and read all of Rousseau, when he came to America, he expected when he ran into Native Americans to find these incredibly noble creatures. And he, he was shocked to find out that all of the creatures in North America were not noble. <laughs> However, if you, if you believe that the, the true part of you is the pure and noble thing. And if you believe that babies are born pure, unprejudiced, unbigoted, unjudgmental, then what is the problem, right? How, that, well, it's the cynicism of adults. But how does the cynicism of adults get into us? And the answer is by our mediating cultural institutions. The things we're formed in, namely, first and foremost, the family. Because the baby doesn't even know he's being formed in the cynicism of adults in the family. Right? And then your other most profound cultural mediating institutions like the church. And so you get memes like this, hate is not a family value. And people who say this often don't realize how sanctimonious a statement that is. And they also, and one of the reasons for that is, it can also be true. Because if hatred gets into mediating institutions, it does get mediated to people, including children. Right? And it—this th one I think is funny, the one about your religion. If your re religion requires you to hate a group of people because of their beliefs, you need a new religion. One of the things that's funny about that is, in Madison in particular, is one hypocrisy check, you'd be like, 
would, would you feel the same way about your politics? If your politics taught you to hate people, would you change your politics? Or would you say, well, my politics shouldn't teach me to hate people, but my politics are true. There's this great article in the bastion of conservative republicanism, republicanism called The Atlantic. I jest. The Atlantic is significantly on the left in American politics. And they published a report on the, on the geography of partisan prejudice, how much we hate people other than us, right? What states do you think in, in the Union and what counties in the Union in the United States have the greatest interpolitical prejudice and hatred, right? I was actually kind of surprised. I'm from New York originally. I would have thought New York would have been a hotbed of interpolitical hatred. It's actually one of the lowest. Now, it might be they all agree. I don't really know. Like, in, in, in New York, actually, there's an in, almost entire segregation politically. All the blue people are in New York City and in those counties, and all the red people are in the states with the dairy cows. Like, it's a, it's a true division, and so the only real fighting goes on at the university campuses. So I could kind of see how that would work. You know, one of the places that had one of, one of the greatest hotbeds of political hatred was actually Florida. Florida was maybe the number one worst in the whole country. Why is that? Well, Florida's true south, and it's invaded by northerners through retirement. And they all live with each other. And they're all in service with each other because the old people need younger people to serve them. Most of them are southerners. And there's a lot of like, right? It's bad. The whole state's bad. Right? And some of them are Republican counties, and some of them are Democrat counties. But here's the thing. Guess where Dane County is? The hundredth percentile of interprejudicial prejudicial hatred. There are zero counties out of a hundred that hate each other interpolitically more than Dane County. This place. I would totally believe that. That, is, that was not like a, huh, I wonder why that is. No, 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 no. I was like, yeah, yeah. But you can get a great sandwich downtown, you know? <laughs> now, one of these to ask ourselves is what's really going on here, right? Romanticism makes us feel good, but part of the issue is, is that we are so addicted to hatred that we create, we create more hatred even when we think we're getting rid of it, if we don't know it's real cure. And we say really dumb things, like that babies aren't prejudicial and racist. Okay, we know now that, that like French babies come out of French wombs crying in French accents. I mean, have you ever tried to give a baby to somebody who just wears glasses? They think they're Nazis. They think they're like, I'm not, I'm not going to that person. There's, there is nobody more bigoted than a baby. And there's nobody who gets angry faster. I mean, literally, as a parent, the first thing you hope for in your new relationship with your child is to hear them screaming in anger. It's the first thing, because they come out of the, like, wonderful 98.8 degree gelatin into the freezing cold world, and the scream of their anger indicates their health. And so you're like, thank God, my baby, if he was able, would kill everyone in this room without a second thought, with his undeveloped conscience, because he's healthy. Thank God. <laughs> Babies are terrible. And then you, you try to love them. You set them down with another kid. One kid, like, takes one toy from them. They have a million toys. If they had a knife, they would stick it into the other child. Like, they literally want to kill. They like, they're like, that person is out of our tribe. I don't know who this other blithering, slobbering thing is. He's out of our tribe. Do something with this. That's why they scream crying. They're like, you should be doing something! 
It's the idea that we're born these like noble savages and like we are like infected with the like hideous cynicism of our adults is insane. Now, you might be like, yeah, but like aren't adults kind of cynical? Well, sort of. But that's why, that's why we should be biblical, right? The biblical answer is, is that evil resides in us, in the world, which is essentially the institutionalization of evil. The world, that's what that word means really. And in temptation. It's both. It's not just one. It's everywhere, right? And what, it, what also happens is when we put out these memes, what are we really saying? Like we're saying, well, I'm against hate. I'm for love. Like I want people to love each other. Love is so good. We should so, so love each other. Yeah, but what you're really doing when you put out sanctimonious, pithy statements like this, and when you post them on your Facebook page, what you're really doing in the human heart is gratifying people's hatred of people who don't agree with your meme. That's what you're really doing. Nobody reads that and goes, you know what? Hate isn't a family value. That's so true. I should change political parties and religions, and I should just totally—like, no, what that means is this, is hate is a family value, right? So what that means is, is that if, if you disagree with me, and I think what you think is morally wrong, I can unspecifically refer to it in this culture as hatred. So I just call it hate. Why? Because I don't want to go through the difficult intellectual work of making an argument about what you're doing is imprudent. That's hard! And there are counter-arguments—like, no, you're just a hater, and you're out of the tribe, and we don't approve of you. And what happens is that little meme that supposedly was to decrease hate increases it dramatically and separates people in more hostility and enmity. Same thing with a religious meme. Same thing with a baby meme. Right? All those people you disagree with, what are they? They're these wicked, terrible, asinine people who corrupt the pure hearts of little babies. They're awful. It's awful people. And so it's, it's, it's natural that we do all this like, well, let's stop hate. Let's be anti-hate. Let's do the no hate thing. And we get more hate. It's because we have no idea what's causing it, no idea where it's from, no idea what its cure is, and no idea how to do that cure, and no personal moral strength and capacity to actually face that evil in ourselves first. And then— in the concentric circles that go out from us, right? There's another way of looking at hate. Hannah Arendt, who I think was a Catholic thinker, said one time, every, genera every generation, in every generation, civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. Right? Another commentator said it this way, children do not come as pure empty slates. They come with software already loaded. It's barbaric, and that software needs updating. And the way we update it is through what we call civilization. Through the mediating institutions, mainly the one we call the family, and then other civil institutions like churches, voluntary associations like clubs and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and so on, softball leagues, Little League, Kiwanis Club, and hopefully also our gatherings in some of our public institutions, like public schools, right? Which is why partisan government schools are a very terrible thing and, and increase the amount of hatred in culture rather than decrease it, right? What, what actually happens in terms of the building of human hatred is this, 
is that we're born into societies and groups that we are formed by. We needed their formation. We were loved by those people, and we're deeply thankful to them as we should be. Every sub-society of human beings does things in a particular way, right? And we shouldn't pretend they're all the same. They're all equally effective. They're not all equally effective, but they're very difficult to compare with each other, right? Right? Is the Norwegian white subculture in America better or worse than the East Coast Irish-Italian white subculture? I mean, if you were to rate them on a scale of 1 to 10,000 and you were accurate, the likelihood that they would have the exact same rating seems vanishingly small. But how would you do such a thing? <laughs> Honestly, it'd be very difficult. So we just don't. We can't. But you have to make decisions about things, right? Every culture makes thousands of decisions about what goes before what. In fact, one of the, one of the most insightful things in all of Freud's writings, in my opinion, is, his, is the, what he called the bigotry of small differences. Sometimes the people we hate the worst are the people who are so like us, we thought we were on the same page, and then we have a particular situation, and we decide differently about what to do, and we're infuriated by the fact that the other person wants to do something different. Think about this. Marriage. <laughs> Marriage. You thought you agreed. You thought you agreed. Right? But like, you just have like two values. They're the same values, but they're just— one is three for you and four, and for your husband, your four is his three, and your three is his four. In any situation that, like, pits those two, where you want to pick your three, and he wants to pick your four because it's his three, it's a fight! It's like, how can you betray me like this? But that happens whenever any two cultures touch each other. Any two genders touch each other. Any two racial groups touch each other. Any two people with any differences in cultural sensitivity, they can have all the same top 25 values. But if just two of them are switched where they go, even just one place, you can hate each other's guts on any particular issue. And it happens all the time. And without the profound overlay of charity, of love, of forbearance, of humility, without having that functionally enveloping all of it, you don't have a prayer. And if you have that tribalism weaponized by social media by increasing our access to incivility, throwing it out without, re without recourse, and the idea that, like, everything is a simple answer, we can just blame people. Every Listen, the more complicated things get, the more anti-intellectualism looks good. Because how can you find the real answer? That all gets weaponized by social media, and then we all—it just—everything rolls down the hill faster, okay? And so what the human heart then looks for is someone to sacrifice to make us feel better. Right? All of these trials, all these differences, all these hatreds, all these enmities, they affect us. They, they put a knot in our chest. They increase our stress. They produce anxiety. I don't know if you know this, but by 1980— I learned this this week at a conference I went to. By 1980, the average American child rated higher in anxiety than the average 1950 child who was in psychiatric 
in psychiatric treatment. If you compare the anxiety level of a 1950s American child who was in psychiatric treatment to the anxiety level of the normal 1980s American child, the 1980s normal American child had more anxiety than the 1950s child in psychiatric treatment, and it has gotten a lot worse. People have full-blown anxiety issues, like physiological responses, just from like their interaction with social media. I can't tell you how many people I've passed, and they're like, I just have it not myself. Okay, okay, start with this. Delete every social media thing in your whole life, shut down every account that you have, and stop watching cable news. And go to church more. And eat, like, go to lunch with friends, and have a beer. You know, like, just, just, you need to just, uh, just unplug from all the virulence, right? And I talked to them, like, five days later, and their blood pressure has plummeted, right? But most of us won't do that. Most of us won't let go. Most of us want something killed on our behalf. We want someone to blame. We want some kind of scapegoat. We want some kind of something to face trial for us, right? And so depending on what tribe we're in, we'll choose just some other tribe to be our scapegoat, right? It's best if it's a smaller, less connected one, but just like anyone we can get away with will do, right? And you see, once you get to that point, Christians should start to wake up and be like, wait a second, scapegoat, I've heard that. Like, wait, that's from the Bible. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's literally— You see, that's what we feel like we need. And that's literally what Jesus is for humanity. Right? He is the one sacrificed for all that anxiety, all that hatred, all that consternation, all that enmity. He stands in for your enemy. And that only really works, though, when you realize that you were that enemy. You have, like, think about the person who, you, who hates you. You might be like, well, I, Nick, I don't hate anyone. Okay, fine. Let's just—the person who hates you, right? That's the person you're in denial that you don't hate, okay? So, like, just think about that relationship. God had 10,000 times more reasons to hate you than you have to hate them. And his reasons were actually grounded and justified in moral and creational reality. Most of yours aren't. Most of yours are the production of your own self-righteousness. And in the midst of all of that right possible hatred God could have towards you, he chose to find a way to put that aside justly and did so in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. He put to death his own enmity And in doing so, the legitimacy of our envy and enmity. Do you understand? When Jesus died and put to death the righteous enmity of God towards us, he put to death your claim to enmity towards anyone. And you might be like, well, some of my claims to enmity are right. Absolutely. No, some of them really are. It's, it's really hard for you to sort out which ones they are because of all the self-righteousness and all the, the— like, remember, you're only taking a movie of your own life and you don't see things from other people's perspectives very well. And so a lot of the stuff that we feel like we're super justified in, we are not, right? I don't know if you've ever actually, like, 
gone to confront somebody about something and were really ready to listen, and then they shared their perspective, and you were like, oh gosh, that sounds like at least as legitimate as my perspective. Like, if you honestly confront people in humility, that happens all the time. That's about half the time I confront people. I'm like, oh, I think I really get where you're coming from now. I feel like kind of a jerk. Right? But you remember this from, maybe from, I think it's in Matthew chapter 20, where there's this parable where there's this servant who owes his master millions of dollars. And he's, he's brought in to pay the debt, and he, he cries and pleads and says, I'll pay you back. But everybody knows he's never going to pay him back. He's just trying to buy time. And the master forgives the whole debt. And then the same servant goes out into the street, and he starts choking to death a guy, a subservant who's under him in stewardship, who owes him like $50. Right? And the servants notice the injustice of that. Now, now think about this for a second. It's not formally unjust. It's—technically, it's not unjust. The master had a debt with the first servant. It's his business what to do with that debt. He chose to forgive it. So legally, this guy is free from his debt. That's it. That's all there is to it, right? And he goes out, and this other guy owes him money. So he's attempting, in an unkind way, <laughs> to collect his debt. That's just, right? But that's not how the parable ends, is it? No. The master drags that guy back in, the guy he forgave, and he reinstitutes the debt, and he institutes the maximum penalty for the debt. And he says, shouldn't you have forgiven him? Shouldn't you have? Right? Because love, forgiveness, produces moral obligations, even when it doesn't induce legal obligations, and the legality of God is rooted in morality and love. Love is his law. And so even the, the real injustices against us, the things we really deserve to show enmity for, we still lose our claim to them because of how much greater a cause of enmity God had to us and how much greater that enmity was put away in Christ. So that the injustices that we find ourselves in and the injustices that we have received from others are no longer issues of cosmic justice and personal hatred, but they still exist. But our disposition towards them should be transformed into a desire for reconciliation and a desire for curing the injustice in the present moment and for future peoples, rather than pretending it doesn't exist. Let me give you three fairly quick insights from this passage. I know Manohar covered it really well last week, but there's three sort of tools that we can use in relationship to how we do this. The first is, is to recognize that it was Jesus' flesh that unites all divided flesh. Now, it's hard to see this, in the, in the way that this NIV Bible is translated. And it's partly because the word flesh in most of the New Testament refers to that part of us that is profoundly opposed to God and selfish towards our own destruction. But the word flesh is used three times, but it's translated with three different words in this passage. So if you look at the passage, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth— Okay, in the original text, that's in the flesh. By birth is a fine translation of it, Right? You who are Gentiles in flesh, that is, in your impermanent fleshly existence, you're Gentiles. That was your, that was your racial makeup. It was your national, ethnic, linguistic makeup. You just were Gentiles, right? And then he says, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision. That's Jews, right? He says, 
in parentheses, which is done in the body by human hands. That, that, that word body in the body, it's flesh. Which is done in the flesh by human hands. That is, though circumcision refers to this profound covenant with God that the Jewish people had, the ordinance of circumcision is an impermanent thing done to the physical human body. And though it represents what the Jewish people saw as an enormous cultural achievement, and what profoundly distinguished themselves, not just racially, but religiously and morally, and in terms of cultural advancement from the other Gentiles of the world, Paul simply refers to that as something that is in the flesh. And then when he refers to how Jesus saved us, it says in verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. You see the point the Apostle Paul's making? He's saying there's all kinds of things about us that we think of as defining our identity, which are actually fairly and fundamentally impermanent. They are flesh. As in, the, the meaning of that word meaning like, the, the fl all flesh passes away, right? It's like the flowers of the field. It's thrown in the, it's here one day, it's thrown in the fire tomorrow. It actually is not as permanent. It's not as defining as you think it is. With the Gentiles, he was talking about their ethnicity and their language and their nationality and their race. With the Jews, he was talking about their even their religion and what they considered their cultural achievements. And he's saying that is all from the perspective of the death and resurrection of Jesus, just flesh. And it was in his flesh, the destruction and death of his body, that he put away all flesh and therefore, in doing so, united all flesh. And it is on that basis that we are meant to be united in Christ, right? And then the second thing is he says that the way Jesus made this difference is by creating peace. If you read verses um, 14 to 18, that word peace is used four times, and the word hostility, to contrast it, is used twice. That can also be translated enmity or being an enemy of someone, right? And he says, look, this is how he did it. He himself, meaning in his death and resurrection, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside its flesh, in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, you see what he's saying there? He's saying the, the Old Testament that the Jewish people saw as relating to circumcision, which was this great gift of God to them, and what they saw almost as a cultural achievement of themselves, was, was regulated through these ordinances and laws. And that law, which was perfect in that situated sense, referred to a greater divine law in the heart and mind of God. But they're not the same, right? The divine law of what is right and wrong in the mind of God and the law, which is the Torah, or, or the law portion of the Old Testament, are not literally exactly the same thing, right? The Torah was given into a particular context, and it displayed the real greater law of God, but within the situatedness of the Jewish people he was creating within a particular covenant, right? I mean, Jesus literally says this at certain points. The law is not perfect. It's a concession, right? Like, for example, the divorce laws. The divorce laws in the Old Testament are a concession. Jesus says so. He says, listen, Moses gave you that command because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. That is, it, that's before sin entered the world, it wasn't like that. That wasn't God's perfect intention. It was his better intention, given the situation you were in. Right? You, you see this happen with like ignorant sec secularists who will say, well, you know, the Old Testament is in favor of slavery. It's for slavery. It's for slavery. It thinks slavery is good. No! 
No, the commands that regulated slavery and made it a much more just institution than it had always existed in the ancient world was a divine concession. That's why all the early Christians saw immediately in the death and resurrection of Jesus that slavery was over. It had to be over. And why many of the early Christians <coughs> were against slavery and freed their slaves. Some of them were killed for it. Christians abolished slavery twice in the history of the world. Once in the ancient world, and then Europeans restarted it in the imperialist period, and then European Christians stopped it again. Because people who understand—now listen, there are a lot of people who believed the gospel and did not accept these implications. But the Christians who saw the implication of the gospel always knew that the Torah had concessions in it, not just perfections in it. That's why Jesus could say, before he's like, the law is love, he said, listen, the whole law and the prophets can all be summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is you need the law because you don't know what those two things mean. So the law exists in a perfect time and, and period so that we can understand and learn what it means to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And now we primarily look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as an embodied law by which we imitate so we know what it means to love God and love our neighbor. And we have additional teaching in the New Testament documents that help us with that. And the church as a community that helps us do it. And so you see, Jesus could wipe away the ordinances and regulations without wiping away the divine law of God. And he did. Why? Because he wanted the Gentiles brought into the divine law of God displayed in Jesus. And they never would if he just left it in the law and ordinances of the Old Testament law. Listen, <clears throat> the world did not fall in love with Judaism. That isn't what actually happened historically. When Christianity spread throughout the world, Andy Stanley's right about this. I don't like some stuff he says about the Old Testament, but he's right about this. The reason why the world read the Old Testament of the Bible wasn't because they fell in love with Judaism. They fell in love with Jesus and the crucified and risen Savior. And then they realized to really understand the full significance of Jesus, you have to know the Old Testament. And you have to appropriate the Old Testament into the New Covenant. That's why the world was taken over in that way by the Bible only as it relates to Jesus as he made the two one and made peace. Right? And he says that the way he made peace is he reconciled them together as he reconciled them to God. Listen, you're never going to make peace. You're never going to make peace through racial, racial reconciliation, through gender reconciliation, through straight LGBT reconciliation, through interpolitical reconciliation, if you are not first put at peace in an incredibly deep way in your soul by the death and resurrection of Christ, who has put away the enmity that existed between you and God and showed you what real love looks like and called you into family with this other so that you can engage in the actual fairly difficult work of not only theologically accepting them as your brother and sister, but actually behaving towards them as though they're your brother and sister. Right? And, and the third thing is that Jesus has made us way closer than comfortable. Right? One of the things that you have to accept—now, one of the things you have to see is that Jesus did not stop with, you know, before Jesus, you, the Gentiles were far away, and now they've been brought generally close in Christ. That's, 
That's true. That's true. We were foreigners. Now we're citizens. There are no immigrants in the kingdom of God. There's only citizens. There's no green cards, okay? I, th- I think that's a relatively good metaphor. As somebody who is good friends with Manohar and has watched him labor through more than 10 years of different visas and blah, blah, blahs and spend thousands of dollars in our legal system and being treated like a criminal every time he tries to just like not be deported, um, even as he does really great work serving us, it is, a, it is an incredible travesty to watch him be what I would consider abused in that way, right? And I'm not saying I know a better way, and I'm not saying any of the people in the immigration system are bad. Okay? It'd be very easy for me to one thing is all those people. I just know it's been really, really hard for me to know her. And expensive. Right? And I want you to know, theologically, so that we can convert that in the way we treat people, there are no such thing as visa holders or green collar holders in the kingdom of God. The minute you come to Jesus, you are no longer a foreigner. You are 100% a complete citizen. Right? And that's, and that's just the first step. Right? And then he says, he's made the two one— I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty close, right? And then he says that he's created one new man. Now, most translations will translate that humanity because man is too anthrocentric, man-centered. But you actually lose something poetically, right? Because when you use the word man, you, uh, you like metaphorically picture a single human being, right? One new man. And, and that's a stronger metaphor than to say humanity because humanity is diffuse in our mind, right? Say so one new man. You see all of humanity in a single human body, and they're one. Does that make sense? And that's literally what the Apostle Paul says. And so we're not foreigners, we're fellow citizens, we're not strangers, but members of our household. That means we live—we live under the same roof, right? So those of you who are close roommates, and you know what you can and can't get away from when somebody's your roommate, that's why later in Ephesians he can say one of our jobs spiritually is to put up with each other. Why? Because we're roommates, and we got like 50 million years of lease left. You better figure out how to get along, right? And then he says that we're actually not just a household, but we're being built into a house. And then throughout the book of Ephesians, he makes clear that we are actually the body of Christ. We, he is the head and we are, are the members of his body. We are to be as united as the body is united, right? And then he says that in Colossians, and it's very specifically talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. All right, so let me spend the last few minutes on where we should go with this. And I'm sorry that I can't say this all better because this is one of the most important things about our life together. So first, you need to know that God was the first enmity, an enemy of our enmity, and has offered the only true cure. And that should make you adore and love God and love Jesus. The first effect of realizing this truth should be you saying, God is— Amazing. He is—he is so much morally better than me and my political and personal and cultural ideology. For eternity past, he hated our true hatreds. And for eternity past, he looked at us not with condescension, but with actual, real, understanding love. Okay? The second thing is that the social effects of our reconciliation are just as real as the personal effects of our reconciliation in the Bible. So if you read through Ephesians chapter 2, just do it this afternoon. Verses 1 to 10 specifically focus on how you were saved. You were lost. You were broken. You contributed nothing but sin to your salvation. But God, because of his mercy and his love, saved you in Christ. It's by faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, right? That you were saved. That's completely real. It's amazing, right? And this is just as real. When he transitions in verse 11 and, and argues this not only through the rest of chapter 2, but all the way through ch- chapter 3, all of chapter 3 pushes this further. He, this is just as real. 
right? So that in Christ, black and white people should be able to be brothers and sisters to each other. That's just as real as that you can be saved. That we can really embrace immigrants is just as real as that you can be saved. That men and women can honor each other in complementary relationship is just as real as the fact that you can be saved. The fact that we could really get to know each other. The fact that same-sex attracted people in our church could let everybody in their life know about that that's a reality for them. That's just as real. It's just as real as that you could be saved. You've got to believe that. Right? We say we love the Bible. We say we believe it is the Word of God written. Most of you would leave this church if I even insinuated otherwise. And I like that about you. And so we must believe what's in it. Right? Third, is that the, the cross is the cure for every enmity of the flesh. It is not just for the Jew-Gentile distinction. Right? Thank God I'm married to a Jewish woman. Right? But it's, it's not just for that. It's for every enmity of the flesh, which includes not just race, ethnicity, language. It also includes circumcision, what we ascribe to ourselves as our profound cultural achievements. Listen, this is really hard for me, okay? I'm just gonna—I'm gonna, gonna be white supremacist for a minute, okay? So you understand the, the wickedness of my heart, okay? I have a really hard time dealing with intersectionality and intersectional ideology because I have no idea what's true about it. It, it's really hard for me because I, I grew up with German, Italian, and British roots. And so I believe in all the values of Anglo-Saxonism. I believe they were just really badly done. And that we needed civil rights and those things to tell us that we should apply them better. But I think that the Declaration of Independence is genius. I believe in Magna Carta. Like all of those histories and the oppressions and the fights of more than a thousand years that produced what we call liberty. And all of that done really badly because of how inner imperialism got entangled in it. I'm, I don't want to be embarrassed of the best of that. And when I feel like my heritage is attacked because of all of the injustices of the history of European peoples, I get really defensive in my heart. And I, I don't know how to stop that. Because I, I don't believe those things are bad. I believe the bad things were bad. And yet when I talk to African-American friends, they're like, dude, you're completely off. Your, your sense of proportion is whacked. you got to get this right. And I'm like, okay, how? And, and yet, like, I feel like their sense of proportion is off too. And like, we, it's very hard. And I've prayed about this for years. And I've, I've engaged in so many conversations about this. And I don't know what to do. And so what I do is I say, okay, you're my brother in Christ. What do you want to do? It's honestly what I've done. I've spent hundreds and thousands of hours of my life just turning to my not-white brothers and sisters and said, okay, I don't even, th I think, I don't even think I agree with what you want to do to make things better. But like, let's just do some stuff you want to do. Like, kind of like in my marriage. My, my, it turns out my wife is a woman, and she wants to do stuff that I, doesn't make any sense to me. And she tells me why she wants to do it. It doesn't make any sense to me still. Right? And I tell her why I want to do the other thing, and it doesn't make any sense to her. And she's like, your, your values are messed up. And I'm like, your values are messed up. We're not going to get the results you want. We're not going to get the results you want. Okay, we can't do both at the same time. So let's do your thing this time. I feel like that's what I do in racial relations and in intercultural relations and in trying to make things better in the city and in starting schools and in trying to advocate for disparity gaps. I just go, I got, listen, I got this much time 
in my work in raising four kids. I got this much time to help you. Let's just do what you want to do. And if it, I, if it doesn't work, then we'll have learned something. And if it works, it'll be great. And I've got this much blood, sweat, and tear. And I'll give it for whatever you want to do. And that's all I know how to do. And I don't think it's sufficient. But I don't know what the answer is. And I'm not going to give myself to romanticism to fix it. Because it will ultimately lead me into hatred. And I know that. And I don't know what to do with that impasse. And so, it's one of the reasons I believe— Now think about this. Remember 2 Peter? Add to your faith, right? Goodness into goodness, knowledge into knowledge, self-control into self-control, perseverance into perseverance, godliness, into godliness what? Brotherly kindness. Where do you think interracial relations and truly becoming one falls in all of this? You see, I think it falls in brotherly kindness. I think that, like, we really have to work on godliness so we can actually start to function in what the Bible calls brotherly kindness, or like a real desire to interact with each other on self-sacrificial terms in the world they live in, even if I don't understand it and they don't understand me. And it's actually only by doing that we'll ever actually get to love. Love is on the far side of that. It's one of the reasons why intercultural, international, intergenerational— is fundamental to what I want the identity of High Point to be. I don't think we can learn how to love. I don't think it's possible if we don't learn to love across the lines of language, nationality, race, class, gender, ethnicity. I don't think it's possible. I think the, the banging up against each other and all the hurt feelings and all the anger, the coming and going and leaving and staying and budget fluctuations and 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 missional attempts and not following through, and all of that is all necessary. And I don't think, I don't think we're going to get any help from the world. I just don't think if we pay more attention to what Democrats are saying or Republicans are saying, I don't think that's going to help us. I think we primarily need to spend our energy not being captured by those ideologies. And I think that we have to start with the fact that— I basically said this when I talked about Second Peter, that like none of the vices that destroy humanity are learned and like, we, like are part of our like racism, right? All of our vices, including our, all of our racisms and hatreds, all flow right out of our little warm centers. <laughs> it's called sin. And every virtue— has to be pursued through blood, sweat, and tears graciously by trusting in Christ and following after him. So let me end with this, because I'm a little bit over what we normally do for time. Um, the last word should be shouldn't. Sorry. Last word. People still feel excluded even when you don't think they should. Oh, no, that's right, actually. People still feel excluded even when you don't think they should feel excluded. Um, one of the things that happened with Manohar's sermon last week, if you weren't here and you don't know Manohar, he's, he's Indian, um, like subcontinent of India, Indian. And he talked about this, and a number of people were like, thank you for talking about that, because I feel excluded at High Point Church. Like, I feel like, like, I come here, and I love High Point, and I love what we talk about, and I love the scripture, and I love Jesus, but like, I really do feel like an outsider. I just, I do. And um, mo most of us probably would be like, what? What? Right? And because I, there's probably not a single person in this room who believes in the theological division between peoples in Christ. None of us believe that. 
we all theologically believe that we're all one in Christ. But we all also believe that in the leisure of our life, we want to hang out with people that we—it's not hard to get along with. We want it to—like, there's this Dawes song where he's, like, singing about a romantic relationship, and he's like, look, if I needed somebody to spend my money, I wouldn't have to get paid. Like, I, like, I don't need—I don't need your, your stuff, right? And when he gets to the end about what he wants out of a relationship, he says, I just need someone who will make the days go easy, right? It's a great folk song. Like, it, you're like, yes, that's what I want for my romantic—I don't want— I don't want to be nagged. I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want to be—I don't want them to spend all my money. I just—I want someone who will just make the days go easy, man. This world is hard enough, right? And I don't know anybody who wouldn't feel like that, right? And yet, to, the work of love has n- just doesn't have a lot to do with that. It's—right? Like, to be around people you got to put up with, like to have a family— or to cross racial lines, both of them. You got to put up with people, man. You got to fight at it. But listen, the more godly we are, the more grace is in our hearts, the more even when we learn to love people, we will find people still make the days go easy for us. But it's on the far side of maturity. But I want, listen, what I want you to know is, is that. I believe our theology is correct about this. I do believe that. But I don't—I don't—you got to remember that people feel excluded with all kinds of little things. Like, I believe that. Look, I'm—I've been in Madison—I've been here nine years this week, okay? So I've been—Madison has been where I live for nine years. I know—I know half the city hates my guts. I only—I've only got, like, I don't know, three, four dozen hate letters. You know? It's not that many. Nine years, right? But I know most of the places I go, the minute they find out what I am, they don't like me. And they don't say, oh, I don't like you. They don't do that. They just stop talking to me and walk away. They just say hi and don't pay any attention to me. They just—I hear about them talking about me later. They talk to me like I'm stupid, like I don't have an education or I've never read a book or something. They— they treat me like I must have all these racist assumptions that I know about and don't care and I like being bigoted. Like they just, they just treat me like I'm scum. And it's almost all nonverbal. And I know it. It's so obvious to me. So obvious to me. And one of the problems with human life is, is that all the stuff you wish you weren't communicating, you are. That's the problem, right? And so when people come in here and they are not what you like, they know immediately they know that you don't like their visible tattoos. They know that you think they act a little gay, even if they are. They know that you, they, that you think they don't have enough children soon enough, or too many children. They know that they think that you don't speak well enough. They, like, they know that. So, they know that they don't, they don't, it's okay that you're here, the color skin you have, but you're, you're going to get friendly, but not friend from them. And you know it immediately in that first interaction. All the stuff we wish we weren't communicating to people, we are. And you can't fix it by being more friendly. We can only fix it by worshiping Jesus more deeply. Believing more deeply that we are brother and sister to each other. And more adamantly 
be, see other people as brother and sister, rehabilitating that in our soul every day, and so acting towards others like their brother and sister. And then hopefully, by the work of the Spirit and the grace of God and the truth of the gospel, to really grow. Okay, I gotta stop there. Um, so let's pray. God, um, I, I feel like I should stop there. I've probably done enough. Um, and so I, I want to pray what I often do at the end of sermons, that Holy Spirit, you would take the things that I said that were true and helpful, and that you would press them into the hearts of people. I pray that within their intuitions and within their minds, they would know them to be true, that they would know that I am re-speaking something that you believe, that it is in the divine law of love. And that the things that I said that are just not helpful and not true— and another way in which I unknowingly am sneaking the divisions of the flesh somehow into the unity of all flesh that you purchased in the cross, I pray that it would be forgotten by the time they unlock their car. And I pray that among us, that you would raise up a standard of truth and love and brotherly kindness in us, a moral and spiritual strength that would make us able to love each other, and so that people feel ever less excluded, ever less a little on the outside, and ever more brother and sister, and that we would behave as though that union in one body is as true as that we are saved in Christ. We pray in his name.